0: For this episode, we're reaching back into the archives. Back to Tuesday, June 23rd, 2015, when Hyperallergic hosted an IRL event at Housing Works Bookstore Cafe in Manhattan's Soho neighborhood. That special evening, which was our first ever live reading event, we invited Hyperallergic Weekend editors John Yao and Albert Mobilia to read their poetry. We also welcomed writers Marissa Crawford and Ryan Wong to read pieces that were among our favorites from the blogazine that year. Marissa read her incredibly moving Crying for Anna Mendieta at the Carl Andre Retrospective piece. And Ryan read his controversial I Am Joe Scanlan article, which is still one of my favorite pieces of criticism from the last decade as he shreds the conceptual framework of a controversial work of art that was part of the Whitney Biennial that year. I still get a kick listening to it. There's also a couple of treats for longtime readers of Hyperallergic. As two veteran Hyperallergic writers and editors, Alison Meyer and Jillian Steinhauer, read some of their work that evening. Alison shares a wonderful story about visiting Piet Mondrian's tomb in Queens, New York while editor and critic Gillian Steinhauer read her wry critique of Matthew Barney's six-hour-long River of Fundament film, which we appropriately titled Waiting in Matthew Barney's River of Shit. You'll also hear from Tiernan Morgan, Jennifer Samet, and Alyssa Walkalmino, as they share some of the zany common threads that were percolating on the website at the time, including a particular fave of mine that involves, wait for it, Shakespeare truthers. And there's even a short Q&A at the end with Hyperallergic Weekend editor Thomas McKelly. The only part we weren't able to include in this recording was the trivia section, which was masterfully organized by former Hyperallergic editor Benjamin Sutton. Sadly, the recording, which was provided to us by Housing Works, didn't capture the audience responses. So rather than having it sound like he was speaking into the abyss with no answers in response, we cut out that section. But I assure you it was funny. Take my word for it. I also wanted to mention there are a couple little technical glitches in this recording, including at the beginning, when John Yao is reading some of his poetry, and then at the end, where the recording just cut off, so we picked a spot we thought would be the best fit. Clearly, the tech gods and goddesses were temperamental that evening. Such is life. I hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Hi, everyone. Good evening. How's everybody doing? Welcome to Housing Works Bookstore Cafe. My name is Molly Quinn. I'm the director of public programming here at the bookstore. Can I get a round of applause from anyone who's here in the store for the very first time? That's awesome. I'm so excited that we have so many new faces here in the store tonight. That gives me the opportunity to tell you guys a couple of things about Housing Works. Housing Works is a healing community of people living with and affected by HIV and AIDS. Our mission is to end the dual crises of homelessness and AIDS, through relentless advocacy, the provision of life-saving services, and entrepreneurial businesses that sustain our efforts. So that's what this bookstore is, one of those entrepreneurial businesses. So that means that all of the books and movies and music here in the store are donated to us. And all of the people ringing up your purchases and pouring your coffee are volunteers. That way, all of the money we raise here in the store goes to healthcare, housing, advocacy, job training, and other services for homeless New Yorkers living with HIV and AIDS. So that means if you're drinking a beer tonight, you're doing a good deed. (laughs) We like to say it's a rare chance to do good in this world with a PBR, and we encourage you to take full advantage of that while you're here in the store tonight. There's a bar over here and a cafe over here. They both have alcohol and there's coffee and pastries and sandwiches over there. You can also help out Housing Works by donating your old books, volunteering your time, hosting events with us just like this one, and by renting out this space for private functions. We have really beautiful weddings and engagement parties here in the bookstore almost every single weekend. You can also stay in touch with Housing Works by subscribing to our newsletter, which comes just two times a month and is filled with free readings and concerts and parties and public programs just like tonight's event. I really, really hope you guys will stay in touch with us, especially those of you who are new to Housing Works. Subscribe to our newsletter, check us out online, look at all the cool things that we have coming up and come back soon. All right, without any further ado, I'm very excited to introduce tonight's event with Hyperallergic. All right, so I'm going to bring up your MC and host for the evening, Harag Vartanian, who is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic.
0: Great. Great, awesome. Thanks, everyone, for breaking the rain and showing up. So we're really excited. This was kind of the type of event we hoped we'd be able to do one day, and we finally got to do it. So. We're excited to kind of see how it's going to turn out because, you know, reading online writing isn't always something we're all accustomed to and the different kinds of things. So, to kind of give you a little sense of what it is we're doing tonight, um, as was mentioned, I'm the editor in chief of Hyperallergic. And uh, Hyperallergic's now about five and a half years old. And there's been so many people we've had about over 500 contributors over five and a half years contribute to hyperallergic. But, you know, often one of the questions I always get asked is people want to know who these people are, you know, it's like, especially if you're reading them regularly, you're like, who is that person? What is that person all about? Or what do they even look like? And, you know, and it's like a little, little avatar on a screen usually never does it. So we asked some of the, some of the regular, some of the people that, you know, people really have sort of asked me about or like look forward to meet, and some of the, some, I think really important pieces that we've published. Everything that pretty much is being read from the block has only appeared in the last year, so we didn't go too deep into the archive just in case you're a newer reader so you can have a little bit of familiarity with what's going on. And we're going to, it's going to include some poetry. We're going to also have, do something uh, we're going to try for the first time, which is read some comments because an integral part of what we do is uh, do comments uh, or at least moderate them and try to like inspire interesting discussion. So we have a pretty broad range from the most, I don't know, I guess scholarly, but I don't know, maybe pseudo-scholarly and (laughs) pseudo-scholarly and condescending comments from two Shakespeare and Francis Bacon truthers. Um, True story, happened two months ago. And uh, and then we're also going to be reading comments, uh, some of the some of the comments we got in, in relation to one of the pieces that will be read tonight, which I thought was kind of interesting to get a little bit of what people sort of thought of the piece at the time. And then we're also going to do some some kind of random comments about some recent posts to kind of get a little bit of that sort of comment flavor that we do. So we're going to have some readers do that. And then we're going to end, after a couple of other readings, we're going to be ending with a little bit of a fireside chat. So that gives you a little idea of, of what to expect. And during fireside chat, of course, we'll open it up so people can ask questions. And if there's anyone in the room you want to hear from or please you know it's more you're more than welcome to so we're going to start first of all with John Yao because John Yao of course is probably one of the best known weekend editors we have at Hyperallergic and certainly I'm sure if anybody's been reading about art for the last four or five decades has probably read something by John so I think that's I think it's really important but as uh, many of you probably know he's, he's a well-accomplished poet professor art writer editor many things so We want to start it all off with you, John, so come on up.
2: If I fall over, it will be your fault. (laughs) I just had both my knees replaced, luckily not at the same time. And I also had my spine fused, so I'm standing, hey. I can call a taxi in New York City. What can you ask for? So this is a poem called Black Threads from Ming Chao, who was a Chinese poet. And it was written for a collaboration with the photographer Justine Curland. And uh, the book will come out I think in August or September. And it's three sections in each sex- each poem, it's three poems and each poem has three little sections. One Rickety lock with arrow drawn on its dimpled brass cover. Scorpion dreaming inside a paperweight. Porcelain tub, white enamel stove, orange peel, water bottle beside a cutting board. Tennis ball smiling at its black reflection. Painted bird flying beneath cabinet keyhole, wooden chair, wrinkled pants, torn drawing of a ship. Man by pirates. Two, shall I float this poem on the river to meet you? Past the radiant light of oil refineries, the red neon glow of words rising above the horizon. Past furniture outlets and cargo ships, lovers drifting towards the gorge. Shall I point this poem past weeds and overpasses, tents and chairs? past courtyards and parking garages named after mythical animals. Shall I place this poem on the swirling black river in the last daylight hours, watching it turn into clouds, mist, and rain? Three. My room is filling with butterflies and snow. An armless clock cannot move slower. I don't need to part the curtains to know the sky behind it is also black and white. A photograph of a photograph you sent me via telepathic means. Whenever I close my eyes, I hear rains exploding, stars, and tears. A photograph of you burns its candle in my brain. I sit alone in my room, waiting for a poem to appear in the shadows. I crawl into my tiny bed. A poet sleeping next to a cloud. I fill page after page with words. In the morning, the paper's blank. This is how I send you my poems, written in dirt with a stick. Just a second. I think I skipped a section. No, I didn't. Black threads from Meng Chao, too. In the bad translation of the Chinese poem, that I've all but forgotten, two lovers drift downstream in a boat fashioned from ivory or teak, yellow tar or ball tires, an unlikely substance, which is true of love poems written in a distant era in purple mountains populated by solitary archers, unemployed animal trainers, hermit poets searching for a lasting rhyme. I spend all day talking to my shadow. It is winter or summer, I cannot remember which. Oil refineries send their candle flames jetting toward the moon, that old pearl. Two. I cannot pen my shadow to the page. Once the ink is dry, there'll be no one to read this poem. I might as well count the leaves falling from the sky. Three. Spring left when I was not looking. Your beautiful translation only makes my poem worse, turning a few scattered lines into fish darting beneath rocks. I heard you whispering to yourself while the lovers drifted out of sight. Can you follow that red thread of sky past the junkyard piled with secondhand coffins? Petals from this poem fall into the black eddies. Weren't you also once a thick blue shadow floating through the gorge. A column of snowy egrets vanishes into the sun. If there was something you could have held on to, what would it have been? And then this is the last poem, three little sections. I'll just stop between each one. Presumably, you can count to three. Will this wandering black thread lead me to the blue gorges shrouded in mist? where I hear lovers drift in circles beneath thick clouds of smoky black ink, and moonlight fills rows of empty boats. Will tracing this black thread dancing in my head lead me to the lovers drifting in their splintered sliver of a coffin floating beneath balconies and pavilions where poets boast to the moon? Will grasping this black thread between my remaining teeth lead me to the clouds of ink where a voracious dragon sleeps. Thank you. Am I supposed to like fly now?
0: Awesome. You know, give it up for John. I mean, he came after all, with all the surgeries he's gone through. It's amazing. So, our next reader is Marissa Crawford. Marissa, come to the stage. She's a poet. She's also the editor of the feminist literary blog Weird Sister. And her piece, I think, uh, really touched a lot of us because it was sort of, and, and I think you'll see a theme with some of the pieces that we're reading tonight is they're often, particularly when they're reviews or review-like, they're trying to take the whole idea of the review in a different kind of direction. Like, what is appropriate, what isn't appropriate, where the lines are and boundaries between the subjective and the objective, and then the reader and the artist. And I think this piece definitely captures that.
3: Thanks so much, I'm really happy to be here. So I'm just gonna give a little bit of a backstory to the piece that I'm gonna read. I was part of a protest slash performance at Dia Beacon Upstate at their Carl Andre retrospective in honor of the artist Anna Mendieta. And it was organized by Jennifer Tamayo and Kristen Clifford and others. And so for those of you who don't know and aren't familiar with Anna Mendieta, she was an artist that was married to Carl Andre and she died in 1985 when she fell from the 34th floor window of her apartment and many people including Mendieta's friends believed that her husband Carl Andre murdered her but he was acquitted and he was really protected by the art world and really continues to have a successful career as an artist so we um, wanted to do this protest in honor of Anna Mendieta. My piece is called Crying for Anna Mendieta at the Carl Andre Retrospective. I didn't think I would be able to cry on command. When my good friend, the poet and performance artist, Jennifer Tamayo, invited me to an event called Crying a Protest at Dia Beacon's Carl Andre Retrospective in honor of Anna Mendieta, I knew it was important for me to attend, but I had no idea how I would make myself cry. Organized in conjunction with We Wish Ana Mendieta Was Still Alive, a public action by No Wave Performance Task Force, which also staged a protest of the Andre show outside Dia's Chelsea offices last year. The event was billed as, quote, tears of joy, tears of terror, tears for Ana Mendieta. Come celebrate the last day of Carl Andre's Dia retrospective at a public cry in slash silhoueta party. Bring your own tears. This past Saturday, we arrived at the Beacon train station parking lot to organize, then headed over to the museum at around 3 p.m. There were about 15 of us, all feminist poets and artists and activists. We entered the museum in groups of two to appear less conspicuous since we had heard the museum was expecting us. The plan was to walk around the Carl Andre exhibit for about 20 minutes, crying and or emoting individually, then convene in the show's main room for a crying climax of loud wails. As I walked around the show, my tears came more quickly than I expected. My anxiety about the day came to a head as I looked around at Carl Andre's sparse linear art, metal, wood, and other industrial materials arranged in crisp geometric rows and shapes. They felt to me in that moment like elegant exercises in cool logic, a stark contrast to Mendieta's violent death and to the messy tears that we cried in her honor. Members of our group had begun sitting near individual works, staring at them with tears streaming down their cheeks or just simply taking up space while emoting unapologetically. I looked at an installation of metal squares placed in patterns and shapes along the floor. I thought about how women's emotions are policed in our culture, how Mendieta's powerful artwork some of which features imagery challenging gendered hierarchies and violence against women, was used in court by Andre's lawyer to suggest she committed suicide. How prominent male artists of the time came to Andre's defense. How to this day we're all too eager to defend male artists who are abusers and to point fingers at women who are abused. I thought about women artists like Yoko Ono and Courtney Love who are often defined by their great artist husband's lives and sometimes even blamed for their deaths, how their own powerful work is frequently eclipsed. I thought of how Mendieta's work has been largely overshadowed by her death, yet Andre's retrospective is not touched by it. I searched the museum booklet For Mendieta's name and found it nowhere I cried into my hands wiping my eyes sloppily on my giant scarf as nearby museum guards eyed me suspiciously speaking quietly into walkie-talkies I walked into the exhibits main room at 315 to end the performance with loud group crying The space filled with a cacophony of sobs and wails and sniffing snot and choking back tears and gasping for air. It was stunning and I started crying more intensely immediately, glancing from the artwork to the museum booklet and back again. Other museum attendees were stopped in all corners of the room, staring at us crying women and talking quietly to one another. Several performer protesters collapsed on the floor, sobbing in front of individual installations like they were at a loved one's grave. Many of these women are my best friends. They make up my community of feminist poets and artists, mostly in our 30s, so close to the age Anna was when she died, with still so much artistic brilliance to offer the world. Dia's guards began to escort us out of the building. To one performer, a guard said, quote, We respect your emotions, but we cannot have you disrupting the work. Some of us exited the museum shouting, We wish Ana Mendieta was still alive, while others stayed behind, scattering pieces of paper featuring the same phrase around Andre's artwork. This was a reference to the Women's Action Coalition's protest of the inclusion of Andre's work at the opening of the Guggenheim Soho in 1992, wherein members of the group strewed copies of a drawing of Mendieta throughout the museum. Mendieta's work was largely ephemeral, incorporating natural materials as well as her own body. In her well-known Silhoueta series, she used her body to create silhouettes in grass, earth, and sand, what she called earth body sculptures. She also used blood as a medium. Outside Dia Beacon, we paid homage to her legacy with our own silhouettes in the snow and the word Ana written in fake blood just outside the museum's parking lot. Security guards followed us to the end of the museum's property where we unfurled and held a long paper banner that read, we wish Ana Mendieta was still alive. Crying is often seen as a sign of weakness, of emotional excess, and coded as feminine. As a group, though, our tears were seen as a disruption, a threat. Like much of Ana Mendieta's art, our performance was ephemeral. The tears are gone now. Our silhouettes will melt away with the snow. But it felt powerful and important to bring this raw, emotional confrontation into Andre's exhibit. To remind the world that people are still angry. That we remember Mendieta's work, and her legacy, and her death, and that we're still crying. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Marissa. Now I'm going to ask some of the people who are reading the comments. So I'm going to introduce Tiernan Morgan, who actually works with us at Hyperlogic in the offices. He's a producer there. Fun, fun Tiernan pa- fact, his middle name is Bam Bam. True story. Then we're going to ask Alyssa Walk-Almino, who's one of our editors, one of our weekday editors, who just joined us this year. And then Jennifer Samet who's well known for her weekend column, Beer with a Painter. So welcome, guys. And then I'll, I'll probably, uh, do you all have your microphones? Yeah. You're all good? So this is actually the work that this piece is discussing it was we never assumed that much would come out of it Except for the fact that it seemed to be posted on a some Francis Bacon truther blog or something So we ended up getting a huge wave of comments and little did we realize that there are still people in the world debating whether Francis Bacon wrote Shakespeare's plays so here we are we're gonna we're gonna try to perform the insanity that Occurred um, it's been edited um, So because there's no way that I think people were gonna be able to sit through all 50 What is it like 57 comments and they're like epic each one's like 300 words, but we're gonna we're gonna do the best we can so you wanna start?
4: Many gullible people still believe the appealing myth that the semi-literate businessman from Stratford wrote these brilliant works of genius They don't understand that even a genius needed to be able to read hundreds of works in many languages to write the works of Shakespeare. Many of them are too submissive to authority to think independently about the many holes in the traditional authorship legend. What a shame. It has stymied our understanding of the vital connections between a great author's life experiences and his or her literary works faculty expert on Shakespeare for Media Contacts, Georgetown University.
5: I love your armchair psychoanalysis of many people whom you have never met, much less interviewed. Gullible, lacking in understanding, submissive to authority, incapable of independent thinking. Amazing. How do you know any of this? It turns out, is fair play, what may be said with more justification is that you are professionally irresponsible to advertise your medical credentials and then to abuse the practice of medicine. Your license should be lifted and your tenure revoked.
4: Touchy, aren't you?
5: Not at all. I am addressing your words, and I'm not surprised that you cannot accept responsibility for them and revert to personal remarks about me. Physician heal
0: thyself. Well said, Mr. Hayes. Would that all such montebanks and charlatans that go around waving their credentials be held so accountable?
5: Thank you. My comment reflects the irrelevancy of a medical degree to the question about Shakespeare's authorship. At most, this MD is a credential used as a cudgel and an ad hominem attack on those who do not believe as the doctor believes. I could have but did not mention my credentials, which are relevant to this subject, and my publications, some of which are relevant to this subject, I trust that having
0: both does not make me a Montevac or charlatan. No, having both does not so indicate.
6: (laughs) Frankly, anyone who can read can perfectly well form their opinions as to who may or may not have written Shakespeare. Since we know nothing of William Shakespeare and a fair amount about other potential writers, it is strange that Shakespeare has become the chosen one. There is not one scrap of evidence that would identify William Shakespeare from Stratford under the above headings. In my recent book, to be found on www.theroyalsecretinfo, I disclose The writer is working with a team of writers and publishers and of over 100 people who I name as participants in the Shakespeare works, guided by a principal who was perhaps the greatest British genius of all time, and he was not William Shakespeare.
5: Frankly, any darn fool can form an opinion. The question is whether some opinions are better founded than others. BTW. (laughs) I looked at your site. It was a very disappointing sight.
6: (laughs) The discussion was about who wrote Shakespeare, hence my opinion Bacon did, since I see the circumstantial and psychological evidence combined overwhelming, as I explain in my book. This you discredit without reading it, presumably on the basis of some Preformed opinion which as you say any damn fool can have There is an old saw which could easily be one from Shakespeare never judge a book by its cover There is always time to learn something new
5: You imply that I am intolerant of anti-Stratfordian ideas (laughs) So I reply you cannot know that I am not I have not said anything about my qualification in this field, because I do not find any argument advanced or supported by credentials. But I am a published experienced scholar with a PhD in English. I have published one leading article relevant to and not supportive of Shakespeare's authorship of the Sir Thomas More Manuscript. I have also read a number of articles or books on the authorship question and even reviewed one. Life, at any age, is too short to read all of them, and at my age, 75, way too short.
6: The author may well deliberately have disguised the meanings so they would only be recognizable to some at the time and not to others. Such was the case with Richard II. By the way, I'm also 75, and... (laughs) and have only just returned to reading Shakespeare after a gap of nearly 60
5: years. (laughs) Non-responsive, mere general associations, not detailed arguments, and so much misinformation. Shakespeare, unlike others, shows little knowledge of or interest in the new astronomical theories. How about a nice round of golf?
6: Shakespeare, as far as anything is known about him, had no interest in astronomy, whereas Bacon certainly did. It was only in Bacon's revised later plays that astronomy was referred to. As for golf, I live in Portugal's Algarve, where we have some 50 courses or so, but I play tennis. But thanks anyhow.
5: Crazier and crazier, even granting that Shakespeare had no interest in astronomy, I cannot figure how anyone would know one way or the other if, like you, he or she did not write the plays. Even if Bacon did have an interest in astronomy, how could he have used that knowledge in plays written when he was a teenager and in school? or were the plays written after Shakespeare was dead, and all the references to them in the previous decades were mere retrojections, like the -the after-the-fact notices of Obama's birth in Hawaii. (laughs) Now, enough. If you want to parade your foolishness and ignorance, have a good time, but your bacon is cooked.
6: (laughs) Your desire to insult me clearly clouds your judgment. I am afraid you are ill-informed. My book, The Royal Secret (laughs) simply puts the view that the evidence strongly points to Bacon since he was a good friend of the astronomers of the time, all of whom were trained as one of Bacon's principal tutors whereas Shakespeare from Stratford was not connected to other astronomers. You offer no argument in return and so provide no useful discussion.
5: You cannot get anything right. I did not insult you. I impunched your ideas. Only sloppy thinking confuses the person and their ideas. Now I am done with the multiple inanities of your position.
6: I see from other comments you make on all subjects, you are bent on destroying other people's reasoning with nothing constructive of your own. What a waste of time you are.
5: A successful businessman and now literary con man makes a fool of himself, pontificating in a field in which he has no qualifications, and then, when criticized about an argument which leads nowhere in Shakespeare studies, and his resort to insults, whines and whimpers that the critics are not constructive.
6: You presume you are a good scholar. You say all evidence regarding Shakespeare is circumstantial. As your arguments are now reduced to calling me a con man, I suggest any thinking person would realize you have nowhere to go with this self-righteous indignation you surround your responses with.
5: Some researcher you are. Do you really think that I would make such a claim which I could not substantiate? Look up Michael L. Hay Shakespeare on a web browser and see what you find. <laughs> a book at a refereed respectable press, published articles, presented papers, and public lectures. As for con man, I note that another commenter reported that you shill your books on threads like this one, though at least your book supporting bacon can have no content worth the price. I am done with your lunacy on this topic.
6: I have not read any other books, so you are wrong once again. Perhaps it is you who should do your own research a bit better. Obviously, my sources have been ignored by you since you cannot bear the thought of any changes to your fixed views. Your responses mark you as a rude, opinionated Luddite
5: pratt. More insults and whose views are fixed. You cannot admit that my claims were well founded. You might have noted that one article is routinely cited by scholars on both sides of the authorship questions, some indication that my mind is open on questions and closes on evidence and argument. I wish you every success in peddling your pseudo-scholarly porn.
0: (laughs) Thanks, guys. honestly you can't write that stuff you just have to read it sometimes so it goes on and on like that for a little longer but we we thought you know editing is probably a good idea um so the next uh, reader i'm going to invite is allison meyer because i think you know strangely out of all the all the writers i think people ask about allison the most you know there's a there's a kind of an inside joke in the office is we can always tell if an article is written by allison because it's either about Death or discovering something that you didn't know anything about, or some archival research that has, like, you know, shown that Francis Bacon wrote those Shakespeare plays. I don't know, something like that. So I want to introduce Allison, who's a staff writer at Hyperallergic and has been an important part of, uh, you know, building the sort of the voice of Hyperallergic over the years. Allison?
7: Hello. So a little different from everyone else, I've written something just for tonight, just for you. Uh, So my day job is writing for Hyperallergic, but my night shift is leading tours of New York City's long closed mausoleums or cemeteries. And I believe strongly in these burial grounds as important places of public memory of architecture and history and art. And I also understand why people might think it's totally creepy. So whatever camp you fall into either reveling in the mournful beauty of a marble Victorian monument Or holding your breath as you drive past a cemetery lest a ghost enter your lungs I want to use the brief time I have here to tell you about one artist's grave You should visit in New York City that I bet you have not been to but you definitely know his name So I'm not originally from New York. I'm from Oklahoma, but when I saw Piet Mondrian's grave listed on the interment list for Cypress Hill Cemetery, I was totally shocked. I mean, this is the guy who has the Broadway, Boogie, Woogie, and MoMA so prominently, and I didn't know he was there. I knew about Basquiat in Greenwood, even John Dame's Audubon in Manhattan, but how could New York's arguably most famous artist who's buried here go unnoticed? So, um, as oversights are my beat, as Haragas said, I decided to go visit Mondrian's grave and I noticed the death day of February 1st was coming up. The Dutch painter died of pneumonia in New York on February 1st, 1944, having fled fascism in Europe. And that day, uh, snow was packed on the ground, but it was bright and chilly Sunday. And I managed to get three friends to come with me, picked up some primary colored plastic flowers at the dollar store, and took the long J train to Cypress Hills. If you haven't been there before, the tracks curve right around the cemetery, which is part of this big belt of different cemeteries that kind of cinch across the boundary between Queens and Brooklyn. As I looked out the window, all these tombstones were standing up in the snow, and the thought that rattled in my mind was, how the hell are we going to find him? Because I Googled a map of Cypress Hills, and it turns up helpful things like Mechanic Lodge, and the county line between Queens and Queens, Brooklyn. And the thing about graves for artists is they're rarely monumental. I mentioned Basquiat before, but his tomb in Brooklyn is just this low granite monument in a row of identical tombs, and I expected much the same for Mondrian. But the four of us met up at the gate and we started off, oddly first stumbling upon the father of American embalming, Dr. Thomas Holmes. I'm sure you all know about him, so skip that. And we met this dead-end tunnel that once went below Jackie Robinson Parkway. And Jackie Robinson does happen to be buried in Cypress Hills, maybe the only man whose named expressway intersects with his burial place. I don't know. Uh, Side notes. Then we found a bridge over the parkway and walked to block 51, grave 1191, the hill where he was buried. There was no one else in the cemetery, just the sound of cars zipping past. When we finally reached block 51, I couldn't read a single name on any of the tombstones as the snow had frozen right up to the tops. I walked back and forth looking up looking at what must be hundreds of names on this hill, hoping a clue would catch my eye. And I was already feeling bad that I'd brought my friends all the way here in the freezing weather. One of one of them, Bess, spotted a plaque with the word notable sticking up out of all of that white. I walked up in the snow coming up to my knees on the hill and knelt in the cold shape of it, scraped the ice off the top of the headstone, and there was the name in the years, Piet Mondrian, 1872 to 1944. So here's this period in the sentence of this famous artist's life, and I'm not the type of person to believe in ghosts or even much of an afterlife, but there's something meaningful in connecting to this artist as a person who died relatively alone in this foreign country. And I think these kind of moments keep our icons mortal and also keep them alive as real people who have more to their story than just these paintings on the museum walls. And I think, and I say this a lot on my cemetery tours, is that the more that we realize that this moment, even this one here is something special and temporary, I think the more we're able to seize it and make it good and make it meaningful. So that's why I encourage you, go visit Piet Mondrian's grave if you have a chance. Now the snow's all melted so you'll have much better luck. Thanks.
0: You're going to have to go to see the grave. Allison didn't want to show a picture, so all of you can be surprised. Um, You know, this is Greenwood Cemetery, so not the right cemetery, but you'll find it. So now the next reader, invite up uh, Ryan Wong. He's going to read his... uh, infamous, famous, I don't know what to call it. It's, it's a lot of things. It's so many things all in one. He's gonna be reading his I Am Joe Scanlan. For those of you who may not know, Ryan is a writer, a, a curator, a researcher. He's been working on some really re- interesting research and we're just really happy that he uh, chose Hyperallergic to publish this piece because I think it sort of captures a lot of the spirit and I think really sort of through people's uh, sense of what is true and what isn't in a loop. And I'll tell you that even today, I still have people asking me, or assuming that Ryan did this work, meaning like he's actually Joe Scanlan. So it's kind of amazing to me that it still sort of has propagated and like we, people are still, you know, just believing the whole piece and what it is. And then directly after Ryan reads his, we're gonna read some of the comments from the piece. So we're gonna invite up the crew you saw earlier. So we're gonna do that little fast so that we can get a little bit of that.
8: Thank you, Frog. So about a year ago, I heard about this piece of art that completely baffled me. Um, A white male artist had created a fictional black female artist and called it a work of art. And he hired a few interchangeable actors to play this character. But of course, he, Joe Scanlon, got all the credit for the work. And this work was the featured piece of the 2014 Whitney Biennial. Um, So I began to wonder with a couple of friends what twisted things were going on in this white man's mind. We decided that the only way this could turn out right was if it turned out that he himself were an invention of another artist. But to clarify, there is a real artist named Joe Scanlon. He teaches in Chicago. um, And all of the artworks and quotations that I'm going to mention in this piece are real. Though the piece itself is a satire for reasons that I hope will become clear. Thank you to Hyperallergic for taking a risk on this piece, Uh, not only allowing me to do it, but encouraging me to maybe offend people with it. And um, I think it is also necessary before I read to acknowledge that in the last few weeks, we have seen another stunning, nationally recognized blackface incident, as well as what is our generation's Birmingham massacre. So at the risk of sounding naive, I, I really do believe that all of us, even art critics, have a role to play in ending white supremacy and making black lives matter. (laughs) Joe Scanlon is the artist who supposedly teaches at Yale and Princeton Universities, and whose Donnell Wolford project was one of the major framing works of this year's Whitney Biennial. As intended, the project has set off a healthy and robust debate about the realities of race, class, and gender privilege within the art world, culminating in the decision of the All Black Yams Collective to withdraw their work from the Whitney Biennial. Now that the Biennial is over and the critical debate around it has subsided, it's time to put the project to rest. I created Joe Scanlon. The idea for Joe Scanlon came a few years ago when I became interested in the presence of straight white men within the art world. In so many other realms, straight white men are deprived of social and political authenticity, look at the white appropriation of black music, uh, from blues to hip-hop, the white idolization of black athletes, the apotheosis of white politics being Bill Clinton who rests his persona in black folksiness. In the art world, however, the discourse around art produced by straight white men cast them as singular and generative geniuses. This struck me as a curiosity. <laughs> what would it be like to create a figure that, through the practice of what I term willful white idiocy, could not only point to but also test the limits of and hopefully explode the boundaries of that position within the art world. Could such a project, if it were successful, help to undo some of the myth of the white male genius and its corollary, the ghettoized, queer, female, poor, colored, quote unquote, political artist, this duality that we've inherited from European modernism. So the test was a simple one create an artist whose work was, on its surface, blatantly racist, but to wrap it well enough in the language of contemporary art theory to grant it the status of genius. I admit the technique was a bit heavy-handed, but the extremity of the contradiction is, I believe, what allowed it to continue for so long and legitimate itself within art discourses. So the first important artwork by the fictional Joe Scanlon uh, used the quintessential symbol of white cultural violence in America, blackface. With this piece, self-portrait or pay dirt from 2003, I had Scanlan execute an unmistakable act of blackface under the guise of a project about commerce and the elements and chemistry. And to my surprise, no major critic made anything of this grinning portrait. And it was immediately accepted within academic and arts institutions, true story. And so, <laughs> next slide, the project Donnell Wolford was born. After many conversations with straight white men within the art world, I began to theorize a way to express white supremacy and privilege and violence through a project in which the white male artist simultaneously tries to cast himself in the best possible light. By having Scanlan literally invent a black female character, we produced an intense friction between the artist who embodies privilege and the marginalized body that he invented. All of this, of course, ultimately serving the artist. I was certainly surprised to see how long it took for the Joe Scanlan slash Donnell Wolford project to be identified as racist. At first I thought this was a failure of the project itself. The name Donnell Wolford, true, was taken from a black football player who Scanlan admired as a child, an obvious hint. Uh, And then these various women who played Wolford were interchangeable, identified only by their race and gender. I couldn't have imagined that such blatantly racist gestures would go unnoticed. I can only attribute the delay to the fact that for many years the project existed only within the elite discursive spaces of the art world which are fundamentally hostile or indifferent towards women and people of color. I was relieved though finally to see the interest in the Whitney Biennial, under whose name we were able to submit Scanlan's work. As the artist Coco Fusco would rightly point out later, the ensuing debate brought to reality the Scanlan characters, quote, Castration fantasy about white male erasure at the hands of a newly empowered group of younger, politically savvy artists and critics who could read the works not just from Scanlon's vantage point, but as women of color. This discourse and Scanlon's response to it was, if you will, the punchline of the project. So the major milestone came with a widely circulated piece in the New Inquiry by Yoon Song Kim and Maya McRandalol criticizing the framework of the Whitney Biennial around this project and Scanlan's piece. Kim and McRandalol caught onto the fact that Scanlan's racism was the project's central component, not just a conceptual aside. Their observation was, quote, we in the elite art world are more comfortable with white fantasies of the other than examining lived experiences. And that was indeed the reason the Wolford project had been so accepted within the art discourse. That piece was not only the first to see the project for what it was, but more importantly, used it as a generative starting point to undo other such examples of aggressive white male violence in the art world, and they started the hashtag and website scanlan after it. Finally, the Scanlan-Wolford project forced the withdrawal of the Yams Collective from the Whitney Biennial. After several discussions with Michelle Grabner, the curator, they decided to withdraw the work completely and they called the Scanlan project, quote, a troubling model of the black body and of conceptual rape. It was not a heartening experience. It was a necessary fact that while no people in power suffered because of the project, young artists of color were forced to make a difficult and potentially damaging decision because they possessed a political conscience that the Scanlan character does not. I hope that by creating Scanlan, I was able to offer a touchstone, an extreme example of the willful idiocy that, when left unchecked, results in violence towards women and people of color in the art world and the world beyond. I hope this act of whiteface, as disturbing as it was, can also be seen with some levity now that the project is over. And in offering the story behind it, I would like readers to now be able to pity Joe Scanlan's constructed worldview to stop his violent actions or those of others like him, and ultimately, to dismantle him. Thank
0: you. It's crazy, even though I'm the one who edited that, I'm still like, whoa, I don't remember that part. I don't, you know, it's, a, it's such a complicated piece, so it's great. Um, so we're just gonna get straight into the comments, and I, I, I have a funny role that I get to read my own comments. Because, you know, I'm the moderator. I don't know if you know this, but I'm the moderator for comments on Hyperlogic. Yes, see, that's why if you're editor-in-chief, you get to moderate comments, it's fun. So, why don't we start, go ahead.
5: Good work. I just thought Joe Scanlon was doing a great job of making art critics look utterly powerless and stupid. Hence, art.
4: So, in attempting to condemn white male racism, you cause a bunch of black artists to withdraw from the biennial so valuable to an artist's career you should have revealed your project before the show so that yams could have reinstated themselves your debatable point would have been made without damaging the careers of those it was supposedly about defending hope you feel good about yourself
6: um is this sarcasm or are you a legit idiot
5: such bullshit you think calling people racist is some kind of joke you're not only wasting your efforts you're actively contributing to confusion and divisiveness
6: this article is perfect and deserves to be in the next whitney biennial
4: (laughs) ryan wong a man with way too much time on his hands
5: (laughs) great troll work but uh yawn i get it i
6: get it but you're just trolling. I do this on the internet every day.
0: <laughs> Wait, is this a troll? Is this common a troll? I'm confused.
5: Hyperallergic just jumped the shark.
0: Thank you. We love sharks. So the next person I'm going to introduce is Albert Mobilio, who's one of our weekend, uh, one of our weekend editors. Uh, and Albert is a poet. He's an editor. He's, I mean, so many things. So welcome Albert to the stage. And uh, say hi.
9: I am indeed so many things. Uh, I'm going to read a short piece of fiction from a book that's going to be published by John Yow's Black Square Press that Hyperallergic distributes Black Square editions. Uh, It's from a book called Games and Stunts, and most of these stories are set within games. This one is Dodgeball. A variety of balls is used. Jack appreciates this. There is too little variety in his life. He wakes, works, wanks, and sometimes thinks about just how much money he would need to never have to think about money again. Same, same, and more of that, he says, and he knows that in repeating this complaint, he compounds the problem. He knows himself too well, yet self-knowledge has proven a poor recompense for the effort. He knows which toenails grow faster than their neighbors. He knows the dream he dreams, in which his penis is washed down the bathtub drain, and he understands that this dream's import is merely metaphorical, yet still he showers carefully. He knows the names of the assholes who hung him by the arms from a clothesline pole in the sixth grade and called him Blowjob Jesus because he answered Sister Roberta's question by saying the babe was wrapped in swallowing clothes. He believes the Germans deserve more character development in World War II movies. He knows why she left him, why she came back and why she's the worst for having done so. That he drinks to make himself feel sad when he's supposed to feel sad, but mostly he just feels relieved to feel just the way he does, sleepy. He is quite aware that he chews loudly, that he plagiarized a college term paper on corporeality in John Donne's devotions, that women find him funny for maybe a couple of weeks and then they most decidedly don't, that he can't keep straight the difference between Van Johnson and Van Heflin, and he fears somehow this speaks to some core intellectual failing that he hasn't eaten anything with mayonnaise since he read about the busboy who jerked off in the restaurant supply, not even if he's at a friend's house and the jar is freshly opened. He knows he will not be an atheist in whatever foxhole he ends up in. He knows his own smell, which few of us really do, but after a car accident and severe concussion, he lost all sense of smell for nearly half a year, And when he regained it, he reveled in himself, his body and clothes, and came to understand the morbid, slightly vinegary odor of water spilled from a flower vase as his own. Jack knows the batting order of the 1964 Phillies, he knows every new day contains spillage from the last, and when all is said and done, when his book of life is written, they will say he was well behaved as they look down and notice their shoes are in need of a polish. A variety of balls is used, is always used, at least eight and preferably 16 or more in number. And when a man holding a ball is hit by another ball, he is out. And Jack is fine with that. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Albert. And this next reader is Jillian Steinhauer. She's our senior editor and many people, um, I'm sure have read her words. I mean She's probably one of the most prolific writers we have, certainly, and also a fantastic editor, by the way. If you didn't know, so Jillian, um, and I've said this before, and I, you know, I'm going to embarrass her a little, but certainly, I think Jillian's voice has been such a crucial part in developing Hyperallergic, um, and such an important part of sort of like expanding the types of coverage and the and the sort of the ideas we engage with. So I can't I can't say that enough how important Jillian has been and what a fantastic editor and writer she is. So. Welcome to the stage.
10: So all I'm going to say is this is with apologies to fans of Matthew Barney. Also, I think you can just go to the next one because that's really the heart. Yeah, yeah. This is called Waiting in Matthew Barney's River of Shit. In the opening of his review of Matthew Barney's River of Fundament, Michael H. Miller writes that, quote, it feels perverse to attempt to review or even summarize the six hour long film which premiered on Wednesday night at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. I'm not normally prone to be suspicious of an artist's intentions, but part of me suspects that this is what Matthew Barney wants. It may even be subconscious, but Barney's basic idea with this new film seems to be that if you throw enough shit pun intended, together and stretch it out for long enough and make it suitably incoherent, most everyone will be too overwhelmed and swayed by hovering notions of genius that they won't bother to object. In fact, if Barney had made the film shorter or more coherent, I would feel far more forgiving. Instead, as River of Fundament dragged on and descended further into its pit of self-indulgent ooze, I found myself increasingly indignant at being made to sit through it. Yes, I know, no one was forcing me to stay. By the very end, when the story had finished and given way to a few minutes of gorgeous, generic shots of nature, followed by a few shots of dead nature, because yes, life and death are connected and it's all such a deep revelation, I was ready to walk out. I didn't, partly because I was with someone and partly because I figured that if I'd made it this far, I should stay until the credits rolled. Miller is correct on one count. To attempt to summarize River River of Fundament would be futile. There's somehow too much plot and no plot at the same time. The BAM program does a surprisingly excellent job, but short of quoting the whole thing, it's useless to try and replicate that here. Here are some basics, I think. The film concerns Norman Mailer, who is dead, but whose soul has been attempting to achieve immortality by crossing the river of feces three times. A wake is being held at his apartment, filled with famous people and also some Egyptian gods and pharaohs, who are represented in the film as people covered in shit, since they seem to inhabit and guard the river. Norman has various spiritual manifestations and helpers, including two kas, Hathfertiti, who acted as as his medium during his lifetime, and three cars that become protagonists of a sort. One manages to impregnate a woman after it's been crashed into a river and rusted to pieces. This scenario, give or take the cars, is loosely based on a book by Miller himself, the 700-page Ancient Evenings, which he worked on for more than 10 years and published in 1983. Miller's protagonist is actually a nobleman named Menenhetet I, but Barney chose to replace him with the author based in part on his reading of a review of Ancient Evenings in the New York Review of Books by Harold Bloom. In that piece, Bloom writes, but I don't intend to give an elaborate plot summary, since if you read Ancient Evenings for the story, you will hang yourself. There is a lot less story than any summary would indicate, because this is a book in which every conceivable outrage happens, and yet nothing happens, because at the end, everything remains exactly the same." <clears throat> end quote. This applies to River of Fundament as well. If you see it, you will see many things. A man licking a woman's shit-smeared asshole. A woman giving birth to a bird. Men fighting and tearing out each other's eyes and each other's balls off. Much vomiting, many penises. Barney himself covered in shit and anally penetrated by another shit, covering man, shit covered man whose penis is wrapped in gold leaf. I am not making this up. A woman arched in a back bend peeing prodigiously on a dinner table. <clears throat> Barney is apparently one of the few artists left who still believes in shock value. All of that, mind you, is shot impeccably. The visuals are stunning. Shit has never looked so good. <laughs> and in a few scenes, most notably, most notably when Barney films the smelting of a car at a steel plant in Detroit, rivers of deep gold fire jumping and running into puddles and sculpted towers looming ominously in the air, you understand his talents as an artist. They are formal. As a storyteller and writer on the other hand, Barney comes up far, far short of his five and a half hours of screen time. The script is a mixture of his own writing and passages pulled from Walt Whitman, Ernest Hemingway, Ralph Waldo Emerson, William S. Burroughs, and Mailer, all men. Despite the strength of those names, it never amounts to anything, with disjointed text turned into operatic chanting at the hands of Jonathan Bepler, who composed and directed the music. The music is ever-present and actually quite terrific in places. Strange instruments made of metal and played in a factory in Detroit, an atonal marching band in a parking lot in LA. But the opera decision starts off suspect and becomes comically bad. Maggie Gyllenhaal is a great actress, but nothing can save her from having to talk saying the phrase, fuck yes, while kneeling before her shit and boiled covered father. The lack of strong writing is, I think, what dams River a Fundament. And not so much the lack of plot, so much as the lack of anything. The movie becomes almost six hours of mixed up images and references and scenes without any seeming purpose or point. The many ethnic groups that make appearances as musical accompaniment start to feel like weird tokens in a movie made by a white man about another white man. Mexican guitar players, a ranchera singer, an R&B singer, a group of Native American singers and drummers, an African-American girl step team, this kind of postmodern mishmash can work for an hour, maybe two, but not six. But who are we kidding? This is Matthew Barney. He is a male artist. He makes big artwork filled with spectacles like car crushing. In fact, Barney, quote, conceived of River Fundament as a premise for more immediate experiments and events to be presented on stage, Andy Battaglia writes in the Paris Review, which perhaps explains its inability to come together. A macho artist obsessed with sex, shit, and violence has made a six-hour film adaptation of a macho writer's 700-page novel, and no one knows what either of them is about. Lucky us.
0: Thanks for that shit, Jillian, that was great. So we're gonna do a couple more comments and then we're gonna have a fireside chat with Tom and whoever else wants to join us. But um, these are quick fire comment threads that we thought, because we had to give you the full gamut of like, comments on hyperallergic, except for the really nasty death threats. We didn't give you those, but yeah, (laughs) we don't need to hear those. Okay.
4: To the graffiti artists. Boo-fucking-who. Grow the hell up. Ladies and gentlemen, the most dense comment
6: on the internet.
4: Succinct yes. Dense no. Why must we applaud derivative art? Much like your avatar.
5: (laughs) Your comment
0: is like a fucking black hole. (laughs) Scene. So... And then this post, which still people think is true, but is not, ISIS was not the Venice Biennale. No, I'm serious, people still ask me. I don't understand, anyway. Go ahead.
4: I heard they are going to do a collaboration performance with Marina Abramovich. (laughs) Tickets for their boat parties are already selling on eBay for five grand.
5: Yes, I bought mine already. Can't miss this opportunity.
6: Will Klaus Biesenbach be there? If so, count me in.
0: Scene. So I'm going to invite. I'm going to invite Tom up. Tom McKelly, who's one of our weekend editors, and also um, who writes. Uh, pretty much every Saturday morning, I think. That's usually your usual spot, so if anyone's looking for his artic- article specifically. And I want to introdu- bring Jillian up if you wanna come. If anybody else wants to, from the team, feel free to make yourself up. This is gonna be like more of an informal conversation and opening up, it's our final thing, so we're just kind of opening it up to the audience. So if you have any questions too, feel free so, I guess part of, part of um, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to do this event, Tom, uh, actually, do you want to introduce yourself a little for some people who may
11: not know you? Hi, I'm Tom McKellie. Um John and Albert and I do the weekend section together um, and I'm an artist and a writer. And, and there's a funny kind of coincidence in that you were my editor once. Yes.
0: So uh, that Albert was kind of a it was, a, it was a fun, well, John was as well, but it was, you know, so, it was, um, I have to say it was intimidating being edited by you. I'm gonna admit that up front. But, um, but you know, in, in things, so you're the one who started the weekend section um, with, uh, with John and Albert. So I guess part of the reason I, we wanted to sort of have this sort of informal chat, one to open it up so people can ask questions, but also, you know, just to talk a little bit about the whole process, because one of the things that I, I love about the weekend that really sort of also fascinates me is because many of you were writing predominantly in print up until joining Hyperallergic Weekend and I, I kind of want to hear a little bit about how you think writing your writing has changed or how the writing has changed for some of the people involved in Weekend
11: because it's an online format now. I think it's changed a lot. Um, in print you tend to go dense um, and I know it must be just a psychological thing but just paragraph breaks. I remember you told us uh, it was a rule of thumb, you know, four lines <laughs> or something. Per, right. Yeah. And well, because they
0: kept sending me text that it was like 20 line paragraphs. And I was like, that is the hardest thing to read online ever.
11: And so I thought, well, this is really compromising. What am I going to do? Uh, but then I thought about it and I realized that it really did clarify the writing and it really did clarify the thinking. I just, didn't have the time to get tied up in knots. Um, And um, I do like the flexibility of it. I remember, you know, at the rail, we would send off our copy at the end of the month and it was this sort of exhaustive climax. And so it was this cycle that began and ended and began and ended while hyperallergic is just a continuing sort of dialogue, which, which works very well. And and how did you cope with comments
0: at first? Because I think that's one of the biggest difficulty people have when they go online mm-hmm. is is the fact that you know there are comments and you're reading them and some of them are by crazy people and some of them are really smart and some of them. Yeah, I didn't I didn't tell you <laughs> you wouldn't have done it, John. How does anyone ever cope why. with comments? <laughs> some of them were saying. He
11: shields the the crazy. That's ones. right. I I shield
0: you all from the crazy comments. But
11: how did that impact what you, you were doing at all? Or if, does it? Well, do you remember the last time we met and I said, can we get rid of the comment section?
0: <laughs> and I said, no.
11: <laughs> I, I just felt that, I mean, I'm, I, I actually write believing that no one is reading it. That's the only way I feel as if I can be completely honest and, and say what I want to say. And so the comment section kind of break that fourth wall and if someone says something negative, it doesn't matter how many hits or how many, you know, of these things, it's, it's like, that's the only thing I think about. So that's, that's the sh- long and short answer about the comment section. Jillian?
10: I, I will just say for you and for everyone, or anyone who writes online, there's an amazing oatmeal comic about this. The oatmeal is an online comic and he has a great comic about how, like, you can Mm -hmm. have a thousand million positive responses and one person says one unfounded negative thing and you're like crying in your bathroom being like, this is terrible, the internet hates me. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's common.
0: That's common. common. Are there any bad commenters in the audience? Anybody? Oh, there it is. I knew it. Lauren. Always a bad, bad commenter. So, and how about, um, one, of, one of the other issues that I think has been coming up a lot, I, I think, in the last year particularly at Hyperallergic, and I think I, I've been talking to a lot of critics and curators, it's not unique, and I think artists as well, is now with the art world more global than ever, Do you know, in this kind of constant biennial, constant art fair, constant art exhibition, four exhibitions in four cities at the same time sometimes, or something like that. Now, how do you feel like your role as a critic has changed, if at all? Like, I mean, being in New York, we can't see everything anymore. Do you know what I mean? In the same kind of way, not that we did, but I think it was certainly a lot harder. What do you see, uh, what do you think about
11: those challenges? Well, I don't know how many people in the audience would agree, but uh, if you go to Chelsea, you know what, there's 300 galleries. Maybe there's two dozen worth going to. Um, And, you know, Do you want to name them? Well, there's, there's the top galleries, you know, and then there's some that I always check out uh, to see what's going on.
0: The music this episode is titled A Boy and a Makeshift Toy, and it's performed by violinist Michael Hall, pianist Stephanie Titus, and it's composed by Mary Kuyumjun. The piece is inspired by the war photography of Chris Hondras, particularly a photo of Albanian refugees from Kosovo waiting at a train station. You can find out more about this piece at Mary Kuyumjian's website. Check out the episode notes. I'm Hrug Bartanyan, the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening, and stay safe.